here today. We are thankful for your presence here today, and thank you, uh, Barb, for sharing that letter with us, a powerful testimony from an inmate, a dad, uh, who we ministered to vicariously through his family. And so uh, when we have Angel Tree Ministry, it is nice uh, before Christmas to participate in that. I've done that before, and it is powerful to visit with families whose uh, family member is in prison. And so uh, what a great uh, testimony of what God is doing, even within the walls of the prison. Also, uh, thank you, Angela, for your testimony. Uh, Just recognize that each one of us has a story. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a story that is an encouragement to others and a, and a, uh, a life that can be shared with many others around. So thank you, Angela, for that. Uh, <clears throat> if you take your copy of Scripture and turn again to the letter of Ephesians in the New Testament, we'll continue our study there in chapter 4. We began chapter 4 last week, and uh, today we're going to continue with our study through this little letter In the book of Ephesians, remember the Apostle Paul was used by God uh, to write down the words of Ephesians as he sent this letter to the church, uh, first of all, at Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. Uh, The Apostle Paul was writing from Rome about 61, 62 A.D. He was in prison under house arrest, awaiting a trial before Caesar. And uh, the Apostle Paul had been in prison some four years by the time that he had read this, a couple of years in Capernaum and now a couple of years in Rome as he writes this. So he is not writing from a resort spa. He is uh, under house arrest. They're chained to Roman centurions, to Roman guards. But yet he expresses great joy and he writes to the church at Ephesus to encourage them and to remind them of the great riches and wealth that they have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the major outline of this letter is the first three chapters are the Christian's riches or the Christian's wealth, and the last three chapters, four, five, and six, are the Christian's walk in light of our wealth. In other words, uh, our spiritual possessions should influence how we live out our lives, and that's what chapters four, five, and six will get to. It is basically the application of the doctrinal truth we have covered in chapters one, two, and three. I come from a long line of engineers. My dad was a mechanical engineer and a design engineer. Uh, He worked for a long time in the defense industry when we lived in Colorado and then uh, finished up his career at an aluminum plant over in Montana. Uh, But I remember uh, my dad would always explain to me the engineering uh, background to what I had done wrong. Uh, I remember breaking a window with the baseball and having to sit through a lecture about the physics of why that baseball went through the window, the arc, the trajectory, the speed, the mass, uh, and all of that. And I said, "Just Dad, just spank me. You know, just <laughs> this is worse." But he was very detailed, uh, very uh, you know perfectionistic, which you want your engineers to be perfectionistic in that sense. And uh, his father was also an engineer. My granddad, Benjamin, was an engineer. His father, my great-grandfather, Thomas, was an engineer and an industrialist. And his father before him, great-great-granddad Henry, who immigrated from England, was also an engineer and a builder. And so I come from this long line. And uh, I wish, Angela, you would have been my sister because then maybe I would have understood math and physics 
uh, because I didn't pick up on that when I went to college. Uh, math and physics were not my forte, therefore engineering was out of the question. It might have helped if I would have gone to class, too, when I first went to college. <laughs> so, uh, but I have no regrets, and my dad was fully behind me in my endeavors uh, as uh, studying theology and becoming a pastor, and he was uh, a blessing in my life. So, <clears throat> but I was thinking about I read a book, uh, a book titled Applied Minds, How Engineers Think. And that's for you engineers in here. I'm trying to figure out how you're thinking. I think I know. <laughs> but uh, one of the stories coming out of that book was, do you remember when there were 144 time zones in the United States? No, you don't, do you? No, I don't either. I didn't realize that at one time there were 144 time zones until an engineer who worked for the railroad named Stanford Fleming, Sanford Fleming, uh, he was a planner. He proposed a global grid of time zones that was adopted as a standard by the railroads beginning in the 1880s. Uh, you can imagine the trouble they had before that on the railroads if everybody worked from a different time zone. Uh, that's why there must have been so many accidents. Uh, or how about uh, when there was only enough penicillin in the world to treat a few people at a time? Well, that was solved by a chemical engineer named Margaret Hutchinson, who in the 1940s developed a fermentation method to mass-produce the drug penicillin. There was an engineer in the French army in the 1700s who noticed that the cannons that the army had were too heavy to move about, therefore hindering uh, their defense of their country. And so he developed a model for a smaller, more agile artillery and eventually, France could boast that it had the most effective artillery in Europe at that time. And in this book, Applied Minds, How Engineers Think, it argues that much of our lives depend upon the often hidden, unappreciated work of engineers. And so it's kind of like, uh, you know, hug an engineer day, I think, is what it is. Uh, you know, there's engineering in all sorts of avenues of life, microprocessors, computer code, pharmaceuticals, rockets, electrical systems, and uh, on the big systems and the small systems that we just take for granted in our lives, uh, especially air traffic control. I always appreciate that one. And uh, so unfortunately, in today's world, the innovators and the creatives get most of the praise for their efforts. For instance, uh, Alexander Fleming, the man who discovered penicillin, he received a statesman's funeral at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. He was hailed as a national hero. But yet, Margaret Hutchinson, the chemical engineer who made the drug available to millions and millions of people, died fairly anonymously on a winter's day in Massachusetts. But both of their roles were essential. And, you know, that's a picture of the church everybody's role, everybody's part, everybody's piece of what this is called the church, the bride of Christ, is essential. And we, especially as, as uh, Westerners, as Americans, can really get derailed because we have our uh, <clears throat> Christian celebrities and we start holding up different uh, avenues of ministry as, oh, this is the way to do it. This is the way to be the church. Uh, this is all what it's all about. And yet, uh, it's really all about Jesus and about what he is doing in his design for the church. 
And so we move into Ephesians chapter 4, verses uh, 7 through 11 today, what we're going to do. And we're moving again from our position in Christ to practice of our faith. We're moving from doctrine to the decisions we make in day-to-day life. And the Apostle Paul is setting up, he's talked about our oneness in Christ. And remember early on, if you've been with us, uh, he's talked about uh, that Jewish believers and Gentile believers have miraculously become one. In other words, there's a new society, a new race, and it's called the church, which was started in Acts chapter 2. And uh, the Apostle Paul is reminding us that there is not just a Jewish church or a Gentile church, but that we are one in Jesus Christ. And he's talked about this oneness in the previous verses, that there is one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. And then he goes on to talk about this diversity that we have. And remember, he tells us in uh, verse 3 of chapter 4 that we are called to unity, that the unity is, is present in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we, our responsibility, our walk, our decision is to maintain the unity, to be diligent, to maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit that he gives us. And as I explained last week, every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. The third member of the Trinity, this Trinitarian formula, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who indwells his people. He is our comforter. He is our teacher. He is our guide. And God cannot be divided. So when there is difficulty in relationships or in churches, you can usually pinpoint it to one or two things. And one of them is that one of the people is in sin. They have broken the fellowship with other believers, or both parties are in sin and responsible Uh, Because God cannot be divided. We are to be diligent. And that word there in chapter 4 of Ephesians is hard work. It's like laborious work where you perspire. And sometimes that's what's required to maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit. And so in verses 7 through 8, he's moving from this, this unity, this oneness that we have into the fact that we are a diverse bunch. And he is providing for that, building his church on this diversity And he is the designer of the diversity. He is the grace-giving Christ. Look at verse 7 with me, where Jesus Christ gives us gifts. In verse 7 it says, But to each one of us, notice that he uses the term us. Paul was Jewish, and uh, he's talking about the Jewish-Gentile union. Each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. He is the grace-giver. We need to understand this word grace. It's more than just what you say before you eat a meal. Uh, Grace is an infinite term. God uses it. He expresses it. And it basically means unmerited favor. Nobody deserves deserves grace. Uh, Unmerited favor is a concise definition and probably one that serves the concept well. And there's many other definitions, but simply stated, grace is unmerited favor. We receive grace because we don't deserve it, because God gives his grace. A couple other definitions. One writer said, it is undeserved on the part of the recipient. It is unearned and unearnable. Uh, Another definition is grace is everything for nothing to those who don't deserve anything. And then one of my favorites, R.G. Lee, who is an old Southern Baptist pastor, said, the unlimited and unmerited favor given to the utterly undeserving. I like that. Grace is the unlimited and unmerited favor given to the utterly undeserving. 
So first of all, grace is unmerited favor. Secondly, grace is not cheap. There are those who accuse us of peddling cheap grace. It began with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German Lutheran pastor and theologian who was actually executed by the Nazis towards the end of World War II for his part in uh, the, the plot to kill Hitler. Uh, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that grace, uh, those who believe that salvation is by grace through faith was cheap grace. And yet there's no such thing because grace is expensive. It is free to the recipient but costly to the donor. The only way one may say that grace is not very costly is if that particular benefit costs the donor very little. But to use the word cheap in the same breath with the grace of God and salvation seems blasphemous. It cost our Lord Jesus Christ his life. Some may insult grace, reject grace, trample on it, or disgrace it, but that does not lower its infinite value. So if you hear people commenting that we believe in cheap grace, correct them, please, because that's not what we believe in. Third, it's not easy to believe someone who offers you grace. You know, from day one, each one of us, and we're born in the world, we are reared in a merit system, aren't we? Uh, it's, an ex it's where our acceptance is based on our performance. Do this and you will be rewarded. Fail to do this and you will be punished. All of our systems are developed and built on the merit system. You try out for the football team. You try out for the cheerleading squad. You uh, apply for scholarships to college, whatever. It's on the merit system. You have to perform. This kind of merit system permeates all of life and actually, maybe to your shock, most religions are based on the merit system. It's not easy to believe that someone who says he or she will do something good for us that we do not deserve. That's why it's called free grace. And when we talk about salvation, when we talk about spiritual things, we are in danger of saying that our works are going to gain us any uh, credence before God in salvation. When we lived in uh, Dallas, one thing we noticed is down there, uh, they have termites, and you had to have termite inspections. And you couldn't even tell there were termites in the house until they pulled the wallboard off, and you could see how it was destroying the framework of the home. And it was a very big concern down there. And the termites of human works is a detrimental and a, a, a destroys the structure of grace. They start small, but if unchecked, they can bring down the entire structure. And uh, so grace is unmerited favor. It's not cheap. And it's e not easy to believe somebody who offers you salvation that is free. And fourth, grace that is received changes one's life and behavior. The gospel is the good news of the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness and everlasting life. And it is the gospel that we teach here and believe in. Salvation by grace through faith. And so the, the designer of diversity is the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 7 again that each one of us, that was grace was given, how? According to the measure of Christ's gift. How do we measure Christ's gift? Well, it's difficult because it's an infinite gift. His death, burial, and resurrection, his sacrifice for us on the cross of Calvary, paying for our sin. How infinite is that? How big is that? It keeps going on and on and on. His great power, his great love, it's hard to measure. And so, therefore, this gift of grace is almost immeasurable in that sense. It is infinite in that sense. And so, 
He goes on in verse 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. This is a, uh, a, a summary of Psalm 68 is what it is. If you go to Psalms, in some of your notes, and if you have a study Bible, we'll say it's a quote of Psalm 68, 18. That's not totally accurate because if you go to back to Psalm 68, 18, the wording will be different there. It will talk about receiving gifts rather than giving gifts. And so there's a couple other minor changes too. But this Apostle Paul is summarizing Psalm 68. <clears throat> and this gift, this truth that's enforced... Uh, is the fact that uh, God is going to rescue his people. In Psalm 68, it's a plea and a promise that God's going to rescue his people and vindicate them. And God's people were under attack. They were under uh, oppression. And so he went in triumph. God went in triumph before his people after the exodus. And it tells us in verse 8 of that psalm, if we were to go there, that Mount Sinai trembled, the kings were scattered. Uh, Then God wanted his abode, his place of dwelling to be on Mount Sinai, the holy place. And he ascended to the high mount, leading captives in his train. And that's a picture of victors, of of victorious kings or generals leading forth what they have captured in this victory parade. It's vivid imagery. And it's this triumphant march of God up to Zion. And so Paul applies this picture to Christ's ascension that Christ has had victory. It's not arbitrary what Paul has done. He's done an analogy between them, and he saw that in the exaltation of Jesus Christ, the further fulfillment of the triumph of God in your life and in my life and every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he talks about these train of captives being led forth. And here, in Paul's usage of this summary, he talks about giving gifts to men because we are the recipient of those things. He led led us forth in victory, the positional truth that he's already talked about, about salvation. And so he is the designer of diversity. And he talks about God giving gifts to men about this gift. And he's going to get to that and explain it here in a moment. In verses 9 and 10, we see the designer's position, the ascended, exalted Christ. He is the one. And in your versions, you may have those two verses in parentheses because it is a parent, what's called a parenthetical statement. The Apostle Paul expands upon this Psalm 68 experience here, and it's focused upon the ascension and upon the gifts. And he followed, his ascension followed his death and burial, as we know from the Gospels. Jesus Christ humbled himself at the incarnation but was exalted at the ascension. Look at verse 9. Now, this, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended his himself also, who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fill all things. This is a declaration of the humility of Jesus Christ in the descension to earth and the self-humbling and the, the uh, submission to death on a cross and then his victory over death and sin and his ascension back to heaven. This is a problematic passage. We don't will not spend a lot of time here, but there are different views on this because the question is what does it mean that he descended into the lower earthly regions here? And there's about three different uh, ways of doing this or looking at this, and it all is based on the grammar, how you interpret the grammar here. 
And I know that just puts everybody to sleep. And I tell people I missed that day of grammar uh, in seventh grade or wherever it was. But basically, bear with me here. But what does it mean to the lower earthly regions? In fact, literally, it's into the lower parts of the earth. And it can be taken three different ways. First of all, uh, a genitive of apposition. You'll want to remember that and use that in conversation this week. That's one of the grammatical op- op- uh, options here. This would refer to Christ's incarnation, his descent to the surface of the earth, basically. Secondly, into the parts lower than the earth. That's a genitive of comparison, uh, if you're keeping track. <laughs> this would mean that Christ descended into Hades or hell between his death and resurrection. And this was a popular view clear back in the third century with the church fathers. Uh, they preached very uh, you know, uh, attractive messages about this picture of Jesus descending into hell between his death on the cross and his resurrection. Uh, and it's been, it was revived again in the 19th century, and yet I don't believe that that's the best understanding of this. And the third is into the lower parts which belong to the earth, which is a genitive of possession. And this would refer to Christ's death, and his burial in the tomb of Calvary. There, The third view fits best this context because in his death, Christ had victory over sin and redeemed those who would be given as gifts to the church. And he ascended far above all the heavens and fills all things. In other words, he is God. There is none like him. Christ's ascent there in verse 10 where it tells us that he is far above the heavens so that he might fill all things refers to his kingly relationship with the whole world from which position he bestows gifts upon his people, upon his church, because he fulfilled the work of the cross of Calvary. And uh, Christ imparts this fullness and his blessing to the church and to the whole universe. I was thinking about these uh, gifts, and we're going to talk about those in verse 11, the description of the diversity And he's talking about the church as a whole and the gift-giving Christ. And Jesus gave, look at verse 11 here, and he gave some. And then he lists four, uh, actually five different gifts here. Uh, Apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Uh, And so he gives these gifts to the church. And these are gifted individuals They're ones that are given certain enablement, spiritual enablement, to carry out what God has for them. And so Christ gave gifted people to his church. Uh, Elsewhere, there are discussions and teaching about spiritual gifts. And you can see those in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And then here, these are about individuals, whereas the other two chapters are about the individual gifts. And they're listed there for you. Uh, But here he's talking about these gifted individuals, and he talks about apostles and prophets. Now, apostles here is one sent as an authoritative delegate is a lexical definition, if you will. If you looked at a Greek lexicon, that's what you would see. One sent as an authoritative delegate. But we go beyond that, and we recognize that there were in in the New Testament the office of apostle, and that was the 12 plus Paul. Remember, Matthias replaced Judas in Acts chapter 1, and then Paul was added later. So the 12 plus Paul, plus there were some others named as apostles, James, Barnabas, Andronicus, Junius, and possibly Silas and Timothy. 
Uh, and the later ones were probably the gift of apostleship because that's one of the spiritual gifts that are listed. Uh, then he also talks about the prophets, and a prophet would speak forth the word of God. And he's talking about New Testament prophets, not the Old Testament prophets, because he, he talks about the church being founded on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And we saw that, <clears throat> we see that over in chapter 4, verse 11. We see it in chapter 2, verse 20. And remember, a foundation, for those of you who are in construction or uh, design of buildings, you know you only build the foundation once. You don't keep rebuilding it. And so the apostles and the prophets were foundational offices and gifts and functions in the early church. Uh, once the word of God was complete, the apostle John completed Revelation in the 90s of A.D., then the word of God was complete, and there was no longer a need for these uh, gifts which were foundational to the church. Plus, the apostles, uh, the 12 plus Paul, had to see the risen Christ and uh, be appointed by him personally, which we see in Acts chapter 1. And then he lists these three other uh, gifted individuals. There are evangelists, and they are ones that speak forth the good news of Jesus Christ. And I also believe that they are training others. Remember, Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. You may not have that spiritual gift, but we are all called to do the work of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. One of my uh, mentors, Larry Moyer, has a ministry called Evantel in D Dallas, Texas. Not only does he have the gift of evangelist, and he is a good uh, communicator of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but his ministry is involved in training others in how to do evangelism. And they publish all sorts of uh, literature and they speak and they do training sessions. Uh, but he is an evangelist and it's like an itinerant ministry that he travels around and helps others understand how to share their faith with confidence and accuracy. And then the last two, pastors and teachers. Some think uh, that that's a combined gift, and uh, it's difficult to be a pastor without also being a teacher, uh, but not all teachers are pastors, and so some separate those two gifts out. I see them as foundational or, or functioning together, pastors and teachers. And these are gifted individuals. Evangelists, pastors, and teachers are still functioning in the church today, and uh, that's why I'm here, and that's why other elders who teach are here, because uh, we need pastors and teachers. When I was a little, uh, go to my grandmother Smith's home in North Denver, and uh, her dining room overlooked 46th Avenue across to the park, and uh, she would set up a card table, and they did jigsaw puzzles, you know, and uh, I would always make sure I stole a piece so my sister would have a hard time finding the piece. She was good at math, too, and I never got away with it, uh, but... What I noticed in doing jigsaw puzzles is you find the corners and the edges, okay, right? And then you start working. You don't start in the middle. You start with the corners and the edges is my understanding. Uh, and so, but once completed, once the jigsaw puzzle is completed, there's no piece more important than the other, is there? They're all important because if you're missing one, you, it's obvious, you know, it's gone. It, the, the picture is not completed. Each one of us is part of this jigsaw puzzle, if you use that metaphor, part of the body of Christ. And uh, Paul explains it better in 1 Corinthians 12, using our human bodies as a picture. Uh, what do we want to lose out of our human body or have taken away? We don't want anything. We, we want all the pieces and parts, don't we? 
And uh, so the Apostle Paul is saying that these are given to us. And next week we'll look at uh, verse 12 and following. And the reason he gives us these gifted individuals is for the equipping of the saints. And that's what we're about here. When we equip the saints, we do it formally as in preaching or teaching the word of God. And then informally in gathering together and working together in that. But God has given the church gifted individuals. And through the centuries, we've seen how he has used different individuals to equip the saints for the work of ministry. But no one person is more important than the other. No one is more of a celebrity or anything like that. It's all about Jesus and what he's doing. Philip Yancey, in one of his uh, writing, uh, tells this story uh, about uh, his favorite animal. And uh, I don't know what your favorite animal is, but I wouldn't have chosen what Philip Yancey chose. But he has good reasons for it. He writes that, without a doubt, my all-time favorite animal is the duck-billed platypus. It appeals, it appeals to my nonconformist instincts because it breaks so many rules of biology. Consider the platypus. It has a flat, rubbery bill, no teeth, and webbed feet like a duck. Yet it has furry body and a beaver-like tail, and it nurses its young like a mammal. But wait, it walks with a lizard gait, and it lays leathery, leathery legs like a rep, eggs like a reptile, and the male can use a venomous hind leg spurs to strike like a snake. I did not know that till I read this. This strange animal stymied scientists for years, and in fact, the first platypuses shipped back to England in 1800 were judged to be frauds because the Europeans were still reeling from an expensive and popular fad uh, item, imported genuine mermaids, where somebody had uh, stitched monkey heads to large fish from China. And uh, they were not about to fall for another concoction with a duck's, duck's bill, web feet, and a beaver's body. And uh, the platypus, Yancey goes on to say, holds a certain charm precisely because it does break all the rules. Somehow or another, it still works as an animal. I like to believe that in designing the platypus, God had fun stretching the limits of natural law and science. He goes on to say that I like the platypus for another reason. Its combination of so many incompatible features in one humble animal gives me hope that we as humans, too, can break some of the rules that govern the organisms in which we are involved. And I'm thinking particularly about the local church. Uh, you know, the, one of the favorite metaphors in the New Testament for the church is the body of Christ. And that is describing an organism. And uh, organism-type words are used in speaking of this congregation. It's a flock, it's a body, it's the family of God. But also, churches need organization, just like our human body. The organism has a structure to it. It has organization it has a skeletal system, a nervous system, and pulmonary system, all of that. There is organization in this organism. And yet it seems like as churches we fall to one side or the other, we become total organizations or total organisms in a sense. Uh, organize, organizations such as the military and government and big business follow one set of rules. Organisms such as living things, families, close-knit uh, Small groups or small, yeah, small groups follow one another. Uh, the church actually falls somewhere in between those, between those two extremes. Not only are we an organism, 
a living entity, but we're being built into the temple of God, the dwelling place of God, an organization. And it, uh, there's this aspect where it can get frustrating. People accuse the church of poor management, sloppy personal procedures, general inefficiency. Uh, those are organizational issues. And organism, people complain about when the church feels just like another institution and loses its personal family feel. Yancey writes that I've concluded that the tension between organism and organization is unavoidable and even healthy. I would feel uncomfortable within a church that tilted too far towards either model. A healthy church combines forces normally found in polar opposites. We must strive to be efficient yet compassionate, unified yet diverse, structured and yet flexible. We must live like a platypus in a world of mammals, reptiles, and fowl. God is the designer of diversity. He has given gifts to the church, gifted individuals for the equipping of the saints, which we will see next week. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did 